morning, I'd love to start by asking you to kind of draw up some memories, an old story. I'd love for you to think about, see if you can identify the best day of your life. Or maybe one of the best days of your life. Maybe it, it centers around, if you're married, maybe it centers around uh, the marriage ceremony, the wedding day. I remember Jamie and I, we had uh, just a blast in the packed out church, like multiple receptions, just the parties going all night long. And uh, when we got to, to Maui on our honeymoon, we just remember like massaging our jaw. The whole, we had not smiled that much. It was just a day of joy and rejoicing. Maybe for you if, you, have, if you have children, maybe the day of their birth was like an incredible best day. Or maybe if they've left the house, that was like an incredible <laughs> best day if you've been able to successfully launch them. Um, for some reason in my mind, one of the things that stands out is just the joy of Christmas. And there is this one Christmas and this one Christmas present that just always comes to mind. It's like a highlight for me. And so what it was is uh, the Christmas morning, I'm probably like eight, ten years old. Any eight or ten year olds in the room today? Great, none. All right, that's fantastic. We got one. All right, there we go. I see you. And so here's what happened to me on like my eight or ten year Christmas. I, I come in the morning and there's one present under the tree, which is like an awful start to Christmas morning. And it's small, so it's like a second awful start. And then I open it up and it's a VHS. Now you have to go to Smithsonian to figure out what that is, right? But it's a VHS. My dad had recorded a video on it the night before, Christmas Eve night. So he's like in the laundry room and he's got like a shoulder mount camera, okay? So he takes the VHS and puts it in and he's got this travel brochure. And kind of what he's doing is like telling me what my gift is through this little video. And so he's like, all right. And he's whispering so he doesn't wake me up because it's Christmas Eve. I'm going to take you to Seattle. You know, and he's like turning pictures in this magazine. He's like, and we're going to go shopping and we're skiing and see a Seattle Supersonics game. And so on Christmas morning, I remember watching this VHS and I'm like, I get to do all of that. I was just overwhelmed with joy. I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. Now, what I wanted to do is tell you about our character's best day ever. We're in a three-part series on the study of Joseph, looking at the difference in his life and the kind of different person that he is. And Joseph has a really, really good day. And so if you're not familiar with the story of Joseph, right, it kind of starts where uh, he's the favorite of his father, gets given this, you know, rich, royal, colorful robe. The brothers, 12 brothers or 11 brothers, super jealous. They strip him of it, throw him in a pit. They want to kill him and they settle for just selling him into slavery. So Joseph winds up getting taken to Egypt, sold into Potiphar's house. He's the captain of the guard, an officer of Pharaoh. And there, Potiphar's wife kind of makes a pass at him, makes some false accusations, and he's thrown into prison. Now, here's where kind of his best day starts to happen. There's a, when he's in prison, there's the, the cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh. And they're also, do something wrong, upset Pharaoh, and they're thrown into prison as well. While they're in prison with Joseph, the cupbearer and the baker have some dreams. The cupbearer's dream is this. He dreams that there's these three vines or these three branches that spread out and there's clusters of grapes on the end of all of them. And so the cupbearer takes Pharaoh's cup and he comes over and he squeezes the grapes into the cup and in his dream, he hands it to Pharaoh. And he says, Joseph, what does this dream mean? And Joseph says, I can't interpret it, but God can. And here's what it means. The three branches represent three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. And you will be restored to your position. You once again will take the cup and place it into Pharaoh's hands. 
And the baker's like, I had a dream too. That's a pretty good interpretation. I want to share my dream with Joseph and see what it is. And so he shares it. And here's the baker's dream. He said, I had three baskets on my head. And then the baskets were bread and all kinds of things filled up. And then some sweet little birdies came and they were nibbling on the bread and the baskets. And he goes, what does it mean, Joseph? And Joseph said, God has given me the interpretation of your dream. He says the three baskets represent three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from off of you. You will be hanged and the birds in your dream will come and nibble at your flesh. Okay, not his best. I know it sounds terrible, right? And so what happens is in three days, it's actually Pharaoh's birthday. And boom, it happens just as God had given the interpretation. The cupbearer is restored and the baker is then killed. And before the cupbearer leaves, Joseph says, please remember me. And so he's supposed to go tell Pharaoh about this incredible guy who can interpret dreams. And of course, he forgets, completely forgets. Two years go by of forgetting. And then all of a sudden, Pharaoh starts having some dreams. And in Pharaoh's dreams, there's like these seven big, fat, plump, make some really good ribeyes. They kind of come up out of the Nile. And then behind them are these skinny, gaunt, really ugly cows, and they come up, and in the dream, the skinny cows swallow up the fat cows. And then God gives Pharaoh another dream. It means the same thing, but it's a little bit different. And it's plump heads of grain are grown. And then there's these, like, nasty, little, not very good heads of grain, and they kind of swallow up the plump heads of grain. And so Pharaoh brings everybody in the kingdom, all the magicians, all the wise people, anyone who can interpret dreams brings them. Nobody can do it. And then the cupbearer remembers, oh, yeah, there was this guy in prison. He told me my dream. It came true. Pharaoh's like, get him. And so they go grab Joseph. They give him a shower. They give him a shave. They put some new clothes on him. He comes and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh tells it to him and Joseph said, here's what it means. God has given me the interpretation. In seven years, there's going to be plentiful and bounty and the crops are going to be amazing. The best Egypt has ever seen. And then immediately following will be seven years of famine where there's nothing growing in the land. Now, here's what you got to do, Pharaoh. You have to appoint someone who's going to be in charge over all this, going to collect one-fifth of the grain every single year so that when the famine hits, Egypt has enough to live on. Pharaoh thinks about it for a second. He says, yeah, I think you're right. That's what I need to do. And you're the guy. Joseph's like, what? He goes, that's right. There's no one else who's as wise as you in all of Egypt. And so, Joseph, you are now number two, second in command. The only person with more authority and power in Egypt is Pharaoh. You're number two. He takes off his signet ring and he slides it on to Joseph. He puts a gold necklace and now he puts a robe on him. Twice in Joseph's life, he said a robe ripped off of him. Now one is placed on him. Pharaoh's like, let's take a ride, grab the chariots. They grab the chariots, Pharaoh's chariot number one, Joseph, chariot number two. They go all through Egypt as Egypt bows down, even to Joseph. They get back and Pharaoh's like, yeah, you're not married, let me get you a wife. Boom, here's a wife. That's a good day, right? You woke up in a prison and now you're going to bed in a palace with a woman you don't even know. That may not be a good thing, right? But you got... You got rings and robes and power position. I mean, this is incredible. It beats, it beats my VHS tape for sure, right? But here's what's so fascinating. Here's what's so interesting about Joseph's best day. 
Because of his best day, it leads him to the hardest decision that he will ever have to make. See, Joseph being in charge of all the the grain and the food and the land, what happens after the seven years? Boom, it turns into famine. Two years into the famine, man, this famine is terrible. It's spreading out beyond Egypt. It's now made its way even into Canaan, the land of Joseph's family. And so Jacob, the father of all the brothers, the father of Joseph, it gets to the point, he goes, we're not going to be able to survive. Brothers, minus Benjamin, the youngest, go to Egypt, get some grain so that we will not starve and die. And so the brothers do. They go, they head to Egypt. And if you want to get grain in Egypt, you have to go through Joseph. And so they roll up and Joseph sees them and immediately recognizes them. What would you do in that situation? I don't know if Joseph really knows right off the bat. He's he's shocked by it. So he starts this kind of gamesmanship, this back and forth with them, kind of testing them a little bit. He starts questioning. He goes, you're spies. Do you have a father? Is he still alive? Do you have any other brothers? And they tell him the truth. Finally, he sells them the grain. But he says, but here's the condition. You got to bring your little brother Benjamin back to me. I'm going to hold Simeon right here as kind of ransom, as collateral, and you go bring back your youngest son, or I'm going to know that you're a spy. And so like, oh, my goodness. So they go back, and they, they tell their father Jacob that. And Jacob just weeps, and he grieves because he's already lost Joseph. See, his wife, Rachel, had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. She died giving birth to Benjamin, and now he thinks Joseph is gone, and, and now he's hearing that you got to take Benjamin back as well. Finally, the grain runs out and they have no other option but to go back. And the brothers say, we, we can't go back unless Benjamin is with us. Jacob says, fine, take him, but please return with my son. So they roll up to Egypt and now here's Benjamin. He, he kind of hosts, Joseph does a feast for them and kind of, you know, courts them and shows off a little bit, gives them some more grain and sends them away. But this time... Here's some more gamesmanship, some more testing. He takes his silver cup and he has it slipped into Benjamin's bag. They leave and the guards overtake them. They start opening up the bags and rifling through and they find Joseph's silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And the guards say, the rest of you can go. Benjamin is staying here with us. And they know that this is going to be terrible on the father. And so one of the brothers speaks up. The brother was Judah. Now, Judah was the one who originally said, hey, let's not kill Joseph. What are we going to gain if we just kill our brother? Let's sell him into slavery. He's the one that pitched that idea. Now, years later, here's Judah. And he says to Joseph, not knowing who he is, don't keep Benjamin. Take me instead. I'll sacrifice. I'll be the substitute. And he's willing to step in. Interestingly enough, Judah is the line of Christ. And he shows some real Christ-like characters here. Now at this point, this is the hardest decision Joseph has ever made. What will you do with your brothers? Through the testing, through the gamesmanship, it seems like they've changed. It seems like they've had a heart change. But they sold you into slavery. I mean, what would you do? Now you're second in command at the snap of your finger. Anything you want to happen can happen. And you're right. And you're justified in whatever you do. So what do you do? 
Genesis 45 shows us exactly the way Joseph responds and his reason behind it. Let's read in Genesis 45, verse 1. It says, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. This is such an emotional, intimate time. And so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians in the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. It means they were terrified, shocked, and awe, speechless. Verse 4, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, check this, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this land two years, and there are yet five years which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh, lord of all his house and ruler of the land of Egypt. Hurry, go up, my father, and say to him, thus says the Lord, your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me and your children's, your children's children's, and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. And there I will provide for you. For there are yet five more years of famine to come so that you and your household and all you have do not come to poverty. Incredible that they sold him into slavery. He's been sitting in a prison. He has every right and the means and the power at his disposal, but he chooses forgiveness. And he lavishes grace upon them. It's not just like, okay, I'm not going to hold that against you. Go back. He's like, no, 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 no. Come to me. Go home, get your family, get your stuff, get your flocks, get your herds, get everything and bring it here. I'm taking care of you. I've got you. A famine's going to destroy you, but God has put me in this position. So come on. Incredible that he would extend forgiveness and lavish grace upon his brothers. So I read that and I start to ask myself, why? Why would Joseph do that? When you could just snap your fingers and have those brothers executed, why would you choose forgiveness? Why would you choose grace? Now, what's interesting is that oftentimes if you and I hear sermons on forgiveness, there will be reasons that are true that you and I should forgive, but that may not pertain to Joseph in this case. So if you and I were to hear a series or a sermon on forgiveness, one of the things someone might say is that we should forgive because we ought to, because the Bible says it, because the Bible commands it. Well, guess what Joseph doesn't have? Scripture. It's not written at this time. Another reason you and I might say, you know what? We ought to forgive because Christ forgave us. And we ought to do that and be that example. Well, guess what Joseph doesn't have? The model of Christ. Maybe Joseph goes, you know what? This is just eating me up inside, spiritually, emotionally, physically. I need to let this go. This is poisoning me. We see that nowhere in the text. Maybe Joseph would say, you know what? 
I don't need to take justice on them because God's going to get them back. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He'll repay the evil. Again, Joseph doesn't have that scripture. But now Joseph may have little inklings of that knowledge somehow. We actually see when you rabbit ahead to Genesis 50, 19, when Jacob dies, all the brothers are super worried that like Joseph's going to come after them now because the father's gone. And he says to them, am I in the place of God? Like Joseph is kind of hinting this like, I understand that it's God who's the final judge. You know, what else could it be? Maybe Joseph has seen the merciful ways that God has dealt with people. You know, Abraham, Adam and Eve, Noah, Cain. And so maybe there's some of that, of the character and the nature of God that's leading him to forgiveness. But that's not what he says. There's three key verses in the text where Joseph tells you, explicitly states why he forgives. In chapter 45, it's verse 5, is the first one. It says, do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you. In verse 7, he says, and God sent me before you. He repeats it in verse 8. He says, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. Again, you jump ahead to chapter 50 where Jacob has died and the brothers are worried. He says, am I in the place of God? And then Joseph says this again to the brothers. He goes, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good. To bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Not you, but God. You sold, God sent. You meant evil, God meant good. You purposed evil, God purposed good. The reason Joseph forgives is because he knows that even the evil and the sin and the wrongdoings of the brothers, God used it for good to accomplish his plan and his will. One author says it like this, God uses man's evil purposes as the instrument for ultimate good, even beyond the knowledge, the desire, or the realization of human agents involved. Even the psalmist understood that. What AP read in Psalm 105 later in that chapter, here's what the psalmist writes. God sent a man ahead of him, Joseph, who was sold a slave. And you start to begin a question like, why would God send Joseph? Why, what's going on here? What was the purpose and all that? Multiple, but, but mostly it was to preserve life, to be an instrument of salvation. And so there's multiple things happening here. Number one, he just saves the people of Egypt. There's a famine in the land and had not been for God's plan through Joseph, they would have died. And that even stretches into Canaan. God is preserving his promise he made to Abraham. When he called Abraham, he said, hey, come with me. I'll make you a great nation. I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. God's saving that promise right here. The other thing God is saving is he's saving the lineage of Christ. If Judah dies, that's the lineage of Christ, and God is using him to save. And God is using Joseph to save and accomplish his global plan of salvation through Jesus Christ, who would one day come and say, anyone who comes, I'll offer forgiveness and grace. So that's what God is sending and using Joseph for. So as we think about this, I start to ask him, what does God's sovereignty his control over sin. What does it actually mean and what does it not mean? Here's what it does mean when we say God is sovereign or God is over, is in control even of man's sin, evil. It says that God knows the evil choices we will make 
before we even think about making them. God knows the evil free will choices you and I will commit before we're even born, before we're even a thought. God knows all the broken, flawed, bad, and awful things that will happen in this world since the beginning of time. And God has already decided before the foundations of the earth what he wanted to accomplish and how he would even use the evil and pain and suffering of this world to accomplish it. Now, what does God's control and sovereignty over sin not mean? It doesn't mean that the sinful parties are absolved of their wrongdoing. See, Joseph's brothers committed this terrible, awful, horrible sin of selling their brother into slavery. Just because God used that and brought good out of that doesn't mean they're absolved from their sin. They're 100% guilty all the time. No matter how God chooses to use it, their guilt doesn't go away. When we say that God is in control or he's sovereign, even over sin, it does not mean that God causes evil. He's not initiating. He's not making it happen. There are still free will moral agents that make the decision contrary to God's design, right? It doesn't mean that God wants evil. He would much rather bring good out of good. But God will even use our evil and sinful choices to bring good. When we say that God's sovereign over sin, it doesn't mean that he reacts to evil, it's not like God's like, okay, I got this great plan for Joseph. And what? You're selling him to, no, stop it. No, how am I going to get him out of the prison? I don't know what I'm going to do now. It's not God. He's not reactive that way, right? It's not like God got some lemonades and goes, I guess I'll make, or got some lemons and goes, I guess I'll make lemonade. God wanted to make lemonade. And he was just waiting to be handed the lemons. That's what it means. It doesn't mean sovereignty over sin, that we will see all the good God brings out of evil. Sometimes we don't get to see it. In the Joseph story, we do. It's preserved. It's written down that we're given that. But sometimes the pain and sin and the suffering in our lives that we cause has caused us, we don't always see every piece of good that God brings out of it. Also, this doesn't mean that every outcome is going to be as good as Joseph's. I mean, I wanted to. That would be awesome, right, if every outcome ended that way. But it's not always that way. It doesn't mean that good's going to come out of evil sooner than later. I know we want it to. If something, as soon as something bad happens, we're always like, all right, look for the good. It's going to come. God's going to redeem it. He's going to repurpose it. Joseph had to wait 13 years to see any sort of goodness come out of the evil that was done to him. It also means this. God's sovereignty over sin does not mean that your pain, your evil, or your suffering should hurt any less. It should crush you. It should sting forever. It should leave a bad taste in your mouth. That's because it's evil. And in no way that knowing that God is sovereign even over our sin, should that make it just like, oh, it's okay now. It should still break us to the core. The way I've described it before, trying to see these two things in play is imagine a coin. Imagine a quarter. There's a heads and a tails. Neither can those be combined and neither can those be separated. They just have to kind of exist together as one. I think the same thing is true here. On the tails, there's the evil. There's the Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. On the, on the heads, there's the God is meaning this and purposing this and designing to save numerous people. 
And the, the error is to say, to combine those or to separate those. Like, oh, well, God caused the evil or God wants the evil or the evil's actually good. No, they're different, but they're together and they just kind of cooperate as one. Another way that may be helpful in thinking about this is, and I just made this up, so it could have some errors in it, so feel free to poke holes. But sometimes I, I think God may be more of a judo master than a boxing champion. In a sense, like a boxing champion, it's this powerful, full frontal assault. But, but judo actually means the gentle way. Here's how someone describes fighting in judo. It's not about overpowering force. It's not about aggressive frontal assault, but rather it's about using as little effort as possible. An opponent's attack is deflected using momentum against them in order to arrest their movements and then throw them or pin them with a technique thus controlling the opponent. I love thinking about God in that way as a judo master, using evil's momentum against it to overthrow it. I think that's how God operates. So I want you to know that he's already got a plan and a purpose for your pain. God already has a design for your deviant and destructive behaviors. He already knew you would have cancer. He knew you would get a divorce and be fired from your job or have an addiction to lie, cheat, cuss, steal, yell, and wallow in fifth. You name the pain, and God's got a plan for it. It's incredible what we see emerging. And there's no better example right here in Scripture than the story of Joseph. Listen and think about all the pain, evil, and suffering that is in this story and what God does with it. God knew about Jacob's romantic preference of Rachel over Leah. God knew about Jacob's insensitive favoritism of Joseph. God knew about Joseph's brother's jealousy. God knew about Joseph's brother's evil, murders, and greedy betrayal of Joseph. God knows about the existence of an evil slave trade. God knows about Potiphar's complicity with the slave trade. God knows about Potiphar's wife's sinful lust. God knows about Potiphar's wife's dishonesty. God knows about Potiphar's unjust judgment of Joseph. And God knows about Joseph's wrongful prisoning sentence. God knows the evil deeds of the cupbearer and the baker that got them into prison with Joseph. God knows the cupbearer would fail to remember Joseph for two years. God knew about the seven years of famine that was coming. God knew about the threat of starvation that would cause Jacob and his family to come to Egypt looking for food. God knows all of that. And he says, I'm gonna use every single evil, awful, painful, despicable piece of it to accomplish my will for my good. Evil succumbs to God's gracious purpose. It never has the final say. One author writes, the depths of God's sovereignty are demonstrated by the fact that there is no choice that we can make, however sinful or fallen, that can thwart God's plan. And the reason we have the story of Joseph isn't just to go, wow, ooh, ah, Joseph. It's not just about learning how Joseph forgave. The story of Joseph points to something bigger something greater. It, it's a foreshadowing. It's an appetizer is what we say in my house. Because the story of Joseph is meant to make you think about the story of Jesus. Look at how both are so similar. Both are firstborn children of their mother. Both Jesus and Joseph are shepherds. 
Both are the most loved of their fathers. Both were prophesied to be rulers. Both, their brothers were jealous of them. Both were stripped of their coat. Both were sold by one of the 12. Both were sold by a man named Judah. The Greek translation is Judas. Both were sold for silver. Both were sold for the price of a slave. Both went to Egypt and both were tempted. Both were falsely accused and punished and both were thrown into a pit. Both were with two others condemned to die. Both were exalted after suffering. Both had people bow down to them. Both were given the name of Savior and both were unrecognized by their own. Both offer forgiveness for those who sought to destroy them. Both have the evil intended for them, used for good by God. Both were Savior of a people. Why does Joseph's story point to Jesus? Because the cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest example in the history of humanity of how something that was meant for evil, God used for good. That's why it's there. That's why it points to it. And so maybe you would ask me, Destin, is this this true for you and I? Like the the bad things that happen, the evil and suffering, that God's going to use it for good? I would say it can be true of you. There's a verse in the New Testament. It's like a mirror image of Genesis 50, 20. It's actually Romans 8, 28. I want you to hear what it says. It says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. The the word all things, you go back to the original language and you, you literally translate it. It simply means all things. It's your sin and my sin. It's wonders and miracles and atrocity and suffering and injustice and evil. All things working together for the good. Now, what we have to do is make sure we understand what for the good means. Now, I, when I read good, I kind of want to put an American, Western civilization spin on that. I like my good to look a lot like Joseph's good. You know, health and wealth and comfort and ease of life. That's not at all what Paul means when he writes those words. When you read Romans 8 in the context, you can say this, is that he's using the word good would be equal to conformity to Christ. God works all things together so that you can become more like Christ. And then he says this, so how can it be true of us? For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So he puts two of them there for a reason. Why he uses love God and doesn't just leave that alone is that we would always be wondering, do I love God enough? I love God more this year than last year. How, how is my love determining his working all things together for my good? So he adds another clause. He says, those called according to his purpose. Now, if that was just there by itself, you would go like, well, I don't know. Am I called? Am I not called? How do I determine? How do I know that? But when he puts them together, there's a reassurance that God sought you, that he pursued you, and that he came after you. And then because he called you, you respond with love and devotion and worship to him. When you put them together, there's a reassurance that this can be true of you. So I would say this to the unbeliever, someone who has not yet put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior. I would say that your pain and suffering will only find purpose and meaning in the hands of God. Outside of the hands of God, I think your pain is pointless unless it leads you to salvation in him. And you can have that, right? What other way is there of looking at pain? 
I mean, is there a better way of saying, well, pain is just, it has no purpose. It's absolutely pointless. Is that the way we want to live our lives? Do we want to live and say this, that, oh, pain's just bad luck. Anything that good comes of it, it's just happenstance, just circumstantial. Or, or pain is karma. Any pain or suffering you experience is because you deserve it. Is that the way we want to look at it? Or we just say pain is awful and terrible, should be avoided at every cost, and there's no room for pain in our lives. I don't think there's a better way to look at it and go, no, the pain and suffering of humanity can actually be redeemed and used for good in the hands of God. And so to the believer, I would say this, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what should we not be able to accomplish? What should we not be able to pursue? You cannot ultimately be defeated as a believer. If God is for you, who can be against you? No matter what the outcome is, he's going to work it together for your good. So if God leads you and calls you, man, we should respond with obedience. There's no fear. There's a boldness and courage that comes with this. Because whatever God calls me to do, if I'm faithful, regardless of the outcome... He's going to use it to conform me to the image of Christ. Paul would even talk about this in Philippians. He says, I want you to know that what has happened to me, imprisonment for Paul, has really served to advance the gospel. I hope that will be said of you and I. When I walk out this door, whatever happens to me, the rest of my life, my prayer is it would be used to advance the gospel. Now, as I close, I just want to make a few comments. One is this, in no way am I, in no way is the scripture, the story of Joseph or Jesus trying to make light of your pain. It doesn't make cancer easier. It doesn't make divorce fun. It doesn't make losing a family member palatable. Knowing that God is in control doesn't take the scars and the emotional baggage away. It should hurt and it should sting and it should crush us. But knowing that God is in control, it lets us know that our pain is not in vain. That no tear is wasted. And that God can bring good out of any situation. As Christians, we don't have less hurt. We just have more hope. Because God is in control and he's working to bring good even out of evil. Now, as I prepare this message, oftentimes what I do is I think about you guys. I think about specific people sitting in the audience. I know what's going on in their life, and I I try to make the words speak and be relevant. But I'll be honest with you, prepping this one, this was for me. I needed this. Because I see all the prayer requests that come into the church. I know about the pain and the struggles and the sinfulness I'll hop on Facebook or Twitter and I'll, I'll look what's going on in the world and the talks of COVID and racism. And I forgot that there's a different story playing out. That, that what I see in the news is not the only narrative going on, but that God is in and working through and redeeming and bringing good out of evil. I needed this. And my hope and my prayer is that it would bring you hope as well. Let me pray. We'll end our service and worship together. God, thank you so much 
for this incredible story that you have preserved so that we can see and learn from. Jesus, thank you for Joseph. Man, that he would forgive and lavish grace. And the reason he would do it is because he knew you were taking the evil free will acts of men and bringing a new redemptive purpose out of them. And so, God, I pray that that would give us hope in our lives. Whatever we're facing, whatever sin we've done or evil that's been done to us, God, that this story wouldn't make that easier to just take it away. But there would be a courage and a hope that that wells up inside of us. So, God, I remember the words to the song we sang earlier when we baptized Devin. God, you turn mourning to dancing. And you give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You're the only one who can. You turn graves into gardens and bones into armies. You turn seas into highways. You're the only one who can. God, you bring good out of evil. You're the only one who can. God, I pray this gives us hope to live and perspective to forgive. Amen.